folks. Uh, welcome back to the Real Talk podcast uh, presented by Reform Perspective. We're here for episode 26. And yep. today's guest is Pastor Aaron Rock from the uh, Harvest Church down in Windsor, Ontario. So we're excited to have him on the program. We're going to be talking about uh, COVID for the most part and um, how he's been dealing with it in his church and some of the um, some of the advice that he's been putting out on his podcast as well. So we're excited to have him on the program and, and welcome to the program, uh, Pastor Aaron Rock. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you, Tyler. Good to be here. Yeah, fantastic to have you. If you can let the folks know, I guess, um, kind of who you are, what you've been doing, and um, and how's life been going for you in this in this pandemic so far. Sure. Yeah. No problem. Um, well, as you mentioned, my name is Aaron Rock, and I've pastored the same church in Windsor for twenty years. This is my twentieth year. Uh, prior to that, I spent eight years as an associate and youth pastor in a couple churches. So I spent. 28 years of my life in some form of vocational ministry and um, did a lot of schooling in that process as well. I'm married. Uh, my wife, Susie, serves as a counselor and women's life director in our church's ministry. I have uh, five children, three of whom will be married as of this fall. One was married two years ago. We got two more weddings coming up this wow. summer and fall. And then we still have uh one just finished high school and one still is in high school. They're all serving the Lord. My oldest son and his wife live in Kitchener and they're serving at a church there. Um, so yeah, Harvest uh, Harvest Bible Church Windsor is the name of our church. I planted it in the fall of 2001. And um, it's it's become a, a large church. We have um, around a thousand people or so that identify well probably 1200 that identify with our church wow and under big. normal circumstances you know eight or nine hundred that attend on a sunday so mm -hmm. um yeah we've been fighting pretty hard to continue to minister to our people it's been incredibly difficult there's been a lot of joys and lessons that god has taught us over the past year but i won't lie it's been a a, a nightmare um many days many weeks as well as we've um, duked it out with authorities and, you know, dealt with various issues in our community and media. But um, we're certainly thankful to the Lord uh, for sustaining us and for giving us what we believe is clear direction in terms of where we should go. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. So um, and that's great to hear. And we're, again, just very happy to have you on the program. Specifically, I guess, uh, to the COVID issue, um, how's your church been dealing with that? Obviously, we invited you on the program to to talk about COVID mainly, mm -hmm. and you you and your churches have taken a very clear stance on this issue. So yeah, we just want to know how, how's that been going for your church in Windsor. Well, yeah, we've we've taken a clear stance, but we've also had to take a public stance. Um, there are a couple of other churches I've come to find out in our city, small churches that have remained open, but they can sort of hide, I suppose. Um, there's just no place for a church of our size to hide. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of taken a more public stance. Um, so our story very, very briefly is last April, when we were sort of into the first lockdown, I started to dialogue and discuss with my elders the need to reopen our church ministries. And I'd written a letter prior to sending it in consultation with a couple of other pastors, I came to discover that my long lost friend, Joe Boot, who runs the Ezra Institute mm -hmm. in Grimsby was also thinking uh, similar thoughts. So I contacted him. We ended up collaborating and sort of reworking that letter. We ultimately sent it into uh, 
the premier with um, what turned out to be, I think, 445 church signatures on that, which was way more than we expected. I was thinking 25 or 30, in all honesty. So that led to negotiations with the premier's office, with the the assistant chief medical um, uh, director, with some legal representatives in the premier's office and sort of our lawyer. And ultimately that led to the reopening of Ontario churches, um, you know, to the tune of 30%. So we we were back in our facility up and running in uh, June, I believe it was. And then coming into the second lockdown, we were just very resistant to locking down again. We had several months to, weigh the facts, to study scripture, to deliberate, to sort of clarify in our thinking how we should respond to these, you know, unprecedented events. And so I I think I was the first pastor in Canada personally charged uh, in December of last year for uh, reopening his church, contrary to the Reopening Ontario Act. Now, that was kind of a big deal at the time. It almost seems to be daily news now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the drama of my situation has been usurped by the imprisonment of Pastor James Coates in Edmonton, by the uh, the arrest of Pastor Arthur, the arrest of my friend Pastor Tim Stevens, and you know, numerous pastors. I've been summoned three times now. The middle, the second summons was dismissed because they actually mistook me for a guy half my age. But <laughs> I have two outstanding summonses, so. We were uh, kind of forced out of our building and met in the parking lot. And then we re-entered our building when the second lockdown ended. We were then we then resisted again with the third lockdown. We were able to remain open uh, for about five weeks. Um, and eventually a neighbor across the street called the police and the police kind of came on pretty strong there a couple of weeks ago. And so we're closed again. Um, part of it, um, the the lesser concern is my situation with the law. The greater concern, which we didn't really see in the first and second lockdown, is the collateral damage to my flock. So when we, you know, deliberated, should we, to what degree should we resist? Should we continue to enter the building? Should we drive our vehicles over the curbs, you know, to get into our parking lot, you know, what should we do? Mm-hmm. I have, I have um, a, a significant man in my church that was demoted at work because of his stance. I have a couple of police officers in my church that were being threatened with charges under the, one of the police acts for attending services. You know, I had people being threatened with fines. The police were planning on um, basically ticketing everybody coming out of our church the media was all over us, um, you know, in consultation with our lawyers, uh, it's looking pretty bleak in the, in the legal front. So we are currently not meeting in our facility. And, um, you know, as painful as that is, we're doing ministry, shall I say, in a bit more of an old fashioned way right now. Wow. Yeah, that's tough. Man, that's, uh, that's quite a road over over a year. So how was I know you mentioned a little bit, but how was the time um, for you? Because I know a lot of churches have struggled with it, especially right off the hop last spring. Um, and and compliance was, should we say, like very accepted because um, 
no one really had the time to digest what was going on. But now that you've had that time, has, has it helped to um, really, you know, wrap your mind around what's happening and, and has it changed the way you, way you view uh, your response? Yeah, well, I mean, we've, we've all had time to observe the medical side of this, mm. which is the, supposedly the driving force. I think there's more to it than that. But, you know, we, we now know COVID is a real thing. Um, you know, people have died from it. Um, by and large, it tends to be people with comorbidities. This survival rate is incredibly high, thankfully. Our ICUs in Ontario, which are often used as an excuse for lockdowns, if you just do a little Google search in your own municipality, which I did in ours, are essentially overfilled three out of four years. So that's nothing new. Um, I've had the opportunity to consult with a couple of physicians, I think three or four now. I've consulted with nurses and hospital administrators because we're in a border city here in Windsor on both sides of the border. Mm. So I think I have a fairly good idea about what's going on with COVID from a medical perspective. I think it's a bit of a stretch to call it a pandemic. I mean, it depends on how you define a pandemic, but the reality is most people don't know anyone or at least very few people that have died from COVID. So we've had you know, last spring when we were hit with these images out of Italy with, you know, mass casualties and corpses piling up in hospitals is like, oh, my word, this is this is like the apocalypse. We, we now know that's not the case. So I'm not denying the fact that the covid virus has killed people, but we've we've had the opportunity to just kind of digest all that information. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I'm, I'm primarily a, a pastor and a preacher. So while we engage in cultural issues, it's not like my full-time gig to engage in cultural issues. But the last year I've had to do that. I've had to almost edu- re-educate myself on how governments are supposed to function and what's going on in government, do some sleuthing as to why these decisions are being made the way that they're, do- they're being made. And so I think I have a fairly good picture of you know, what's going on. And um, there's a lot of political opportunism. There's a lot of ideologies that are being, you know, pushed forward, especially by our federal government, which I think does factor into how we respond to these circumstances. I've had the opportunity to study passages of scripture that usually just study, you know, theoretically, everyone's been spending time in Romans 13 (laughs) and trying to parse that out. We've you know, we've been reworking and, you know, refamiliarizing ourselves with a theology of church and state, which again, you know, theology is often occasioned, you know, we tend to lean in and study things that are relevant to our context. So there's a lot of things I've been studying and thinking about that I normally wouldn't be studying in depth or thinking about if we weren't in situations like this. So I've, you know, I've, I've refined my thinking. I, I think I arrived at my conclusions fairly early on. Maybe some others were out of the gate quicker than me. I think the majority are probably a year behind. In fact, I'm, I'm not saying this in any sort of a braggartly way, but most pastors that I talk to are now where I was at last year. I'm hopeful that they're where I'm at now within a few months <laughs> um, sooner. I think f- fewer and fewer guys think this is good. Uh, a greater, greater number are fed up 
mm. with these rolling lockdowns and the prospect of a fourth and a fifth and a sixth lockdown. Yeah. I think everyone's just wrestling with how to respond to it. Yeah. And we know how we've responded. Uh, some of what we've done has borne fruit and been effective and some of it has not been effective. So, you know, every day you sort of get up with your, um, you know, mind spinning with ideas as to how to respond. So there's been, a, there's been lots of times, lots of time, of course, to think and pray about this and discuss it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, maybe we'll, we'll come back to how your church has responded when we come later in the program and we'll talk about some, some different ways sure. to respond. And after we, we go through, we got about 11 or so uh, different um, objections that people often raise in terms of why we should um, continue to obey the government and, and go along with the lockdowns and whatnot. Mm. There's a number of different points okay. here. So I, you, again, for people who are interested, you tackle this on your podcast. We tacked on a few extra ones. Um, so sure. we just want to run through that and, and kind of uh, for those who feel differently, uh, let's run through the objections and, and see how people feel with your responses. So I guess the first one in it's kind of the obvious one is um, that we should comply because it's the law and because the government says so. How do you respond mm -hmm. to that objection? Yeah, so um, the, the interest, so I'll approach this from a few different perspectives. The one is the fact that it's the law is true, but not true. The, the challenge that we're experiencing right now is we have laws that actually conflict. Mm -hmm. So we have laws that say, I can't have more than 10 people in my church as a provincial law. And then on the other hand, we have a charter, which basically says I can, you know, I have freedom of religion. Um, we have section 176 of the criminal code, which forbids the arrest, the detainment, the harassment essentially of a clergyman performing his duties. So in order to, for the police to enforce the Reopening Ontario Act, they have to set aside both the charter which they've sworn allegiance to, and they have to essentially neglect Section 176. What's interesting is Section 176 is part of the criminal code, and the charter is the highest governing you know, document, the highest law in our land. So, you know, while the courts may or may not rule in our favor, I don't actually consider myself a lawbreaker at this point. I consider myself someone who is pro-charter, who is pro-authority. I appreciate authority. I'm thankful for properly functioning government authority. Yeah. Um, and apart from that, the, the, the law that I would appeal to that's even higher than the charter or the criminal code is God's law. So I see in the scriptures, which I would consider the highest law, and which historically Western peoples understood and which our charter alludes to in its reference to the supremacy of God, I would see that God's law has to necessarily be violated in order to habitually comply in an ongoing sense, the reopening Ontario act. Yep. Mm -hmm. So my, my appeal would be to three laws, which are higher than the reopening Ontario act. The first being God's law. The, the second being second and third being the charter and the criminal code. Yeah. So, you know, while, while it is true that the public largely uninformed about the criminal code and certainly God's law and the charter 
seem to feel comfortable pushing these aside. Frankly, I think for emotional reasons, because of fear, um, I, I think that I'm on pretty good grounds in terms of um, subjugating myself to those three higher laws and not subjugating myself to the details of the Reopening Ontario Act. So why not then uh, take the tack that some other churches have, which is abide by the Ontario Reopening Act, and then issue a charter challenge and then wait for the courts to um, to do their work that way? Yeah, so that's, that's a multi-year process um, for that to happen. And in the meanwhile, I, I do have to I have to forsake my people. I have to forsake the gathering of God's people. I have to effectively set aside church discipline. You know, I have to disconnect relationally from my people, several to one another, set aside Christian baptism, uh, the public worship of God, the public preaching of God's word, all the public ministry that we have. And I'm just not prepared to do that. Yeah. Because I see those as being higher ideals than the reopening Ontario Act, which is seeking to limit um, Christian worship down to essentially nothing. Now, you know, bear in mind, if you're a church of 20 people and the government says you're limited to 10, well, one could argue, okay, that's not really an infringement upon our ability to minister. We'll just worship at nine o'clock and 11 o'clock. But when you're a church of a thousand people and you're limited to 10, you're essentially saying, you know, we, you, you throw a pastor in the room and maybe a musician, you need to run 125 services a week. Well, yeah. that's, you're, you're effectively closed. By the way, just a little sidebar. Um, we worked pretty closely with the Jewish community during the first lockdown to end it. And if you remember correctly, the limitations on worship at the time were five. Yep. Now they're 10. Yeah. Mm. The reason for that is 10 gets the Jewish community off the back of the government because they have to have a quorum of 10 men in order to have their uh, service. Yep. So there is a political dimension too to even the numbers that are being selected mm. and put forward as limits. For sure. Wow, for I sure. didn't know that. That's interesting. So what about, um, I know you've you've recognized that that uh, I guess the charter rights and, and the criminal code, I guess those can be suspended for a time. I guess there's a, a clause that if they show um, that there's, you know, cause to do that, um, I guess, what's the word? Demonstrable. Demonstrably uh, justifiable. Demonstrably yeah. justifiable. So have, have they not, I guess it, it depends on what the science you're looking at is because science is a little subjective nowadays, but um have they not shown that to be the case in your mind? Uh, so the criminal code can't be suspended. That's that can't be suspended okay. for demonstrably justifiable reasons, but the charter rights can be. So the big question is when are they going to provide this evidence? So you, you are correct that if you you know get on the internet and you look at statements from CDC on the other side of the border, or you jump on your favorite medical website that you can find, you know, pro-mask, anti-mask articles, you can find different opinions on the efficacy of vaccines. Mm -hmm. But we need to be very clear that the government themselves, the people who are actually mandating these restrictions have not provided any evidence for the efficacy of lockdowns or masks or physical distancing or these things. And one can understand why they would not want to do that. 
because when when they do that and it's challenged, then their power, their control is essentially gone. Mm. So yes, there's there's lots of material out there from conflicting sources, and I'm not particularly interested actually in discussions about whether masks are great or not. It doesn't interest me that much. But the government has had over a year now to provide evidence of the effectiveness, for example, of lockdowns. And they have not done that at all. You know, anecdotally, as we look around us, we see that while there may be some benefits to lockdowns, there are horrendous disadvantages to lockdowns. And those of us that are in pastoral ministry are confronted with those on a daily, if not weekly basis. Yep, mm-hmm, for sure. All right, well, maybe we'll jump into number two. Yeah, so we're never going to get through these if we don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such a tricky discussion because it's so easy to rabbit hole it. But yeah. Hopefully we'll cover all the main stuff at least. I guess another uh, common uh, trope, maybe doing it too poorly, but another common line trotted out is love your neighbor um, by staying home. What do you make of that uh, statement? Yeah, well, so if I'm, I'm looking at you guys and you're looking at me, we are human beings with constituent components. We are bodies, but we're also mental beings. We're social beings. We're spiritual beings. So the love your neighbor line is generally used to say, you know, stay away from people. The, you don't want to, you don't anybody to die. You may or may not transmit disease to them. So the best thing you can do, because there's a slight possibility they'll transmit disease to them and kill them is to stay away from them. And I think that this is an incredibly reductionistic approach to how to manage people. Uh, we're not just biological beings. We're also spiritual beings. We're mental beings. We're social beings. We're sexual beings. And we're physical beings. And when you are looking at a threat to one aspect of your humanity, you, you have to also weigh out how your actions to protect your physicality affects other things. And so I'm not opposed to the basic medical protocols that people may enact to help reduce the spread of a nasty virus. But what I've seen is a a wholesale uh, uh, bent in the direction of physical protection at all costs, regardless of the other consequences. So, I mean, I don't know how, how anecdotal you want me to get, but, you know, we've seen people in our church, for example, fall back into sexual addiction, locked up in their own homes by themselves for weeks on end. We had a young person in our church who came to Christ out of a non-Christian religion locked in her home with her non-Christian family members who apostatized from Christianity, you know, during a very long lockdown. We've seen people lose their businesses. We've seen the, um, you know, rise of, we, we have not had any suicides in our church, but we know of suicides from people that um, minister in our community. We have a woman in our church, for example, that works in a social services agency that shared with us a heartbreaking story of, I think it was a nine-year-old girl who admitted uh, attempting to take her own life because of isolation. And and we could go on and on and on. So what I'm illustrating these things, not to diminish the fact that Mm -hmm. people could die from a virus, but if you just say, well, 
loving your neighbor is locking people up and keeping them physically safe at all costs. The question is, what costs are you willing to pay? The cost of spiritual apostasy, the cost of potential suicide, the cost of physical addictions, spiritual demise, you know, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So I have been, you know, begging officials since the beginning for a more balanced approach. And I just, I wish, you know, I'm not the prime, the, uh, the, the premier, but I wish the premier who has gone on record many times is saying he just, he just takes advice from the chief medical officer and that's it. Yeah. And he, you know, he talks about, it's like, it would be political suicide not to, he would be a much wiser leader if he were to collect a panel of people from across, you know, ec- economic mm-hmm. experts and clergymen and yep. sociologists and mental health experts and say, look, yeah, we might actually lose a few more people to the virus by keeping things open, but we're going to save more people from, you know, the, the following hazards. Yeah. I'll, I'll say one more thing. I was speaking with an individual and, and, you know, the problem with a lot of these, um, you know, conversations that I have with people is they don't want to be named. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, mm-hmm. what's your source, Pastor Aaron? Well, you just, here's my Bible. I'll put my hand in the Bible and tell you it's true, but I'm not going to name the person yeah. that, you know, I had an individual just recently reach out to me who's working in a hospital here in Ontario and the, the ICU is actually full in his hospital. Yep. And he said to me, well, what you need to know is as I was speaking with other physicians, the vast majority of people in ICU are not people with COVID. They're people who are, who have other medical conditions because of lockdowns, i.e. delayed surgeries, mm. i.e. suicide attempts. Yeah. Yeah. So this this makes sense. I mean, I don't I don't think I would have to convince people that there's collateral damage to the lockdowns, but we yep. we tend to have like this myopic vision right now. We're just focused so much on stopping the virus that we're not paying attention to the collateral damage. Yeah. So I don't think that's a I don't think it's a loving approach to destroy people economically, spiritually, mentally, socially, and all this kind of thing in order to protect them from one viral threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, yeah, I just don't know the government's, uh, you know, thinking like that. So hopefully they listen. <laughs> well, I would, I would just say, I would say one, one of the things we're seeing, and this is just a little bit of cultural theology, is we live in a very humanistic age, mm. where the, the average non-Christian Canadian, all they think of themselves, is as uh, physical, uh, as is, is a biological being. So you're, you know, you evolve from the muck, you were born, you have X number of years and you die and there's no eternity. That's their worldview. Yep. So to protect yourself solely from biological threats, it just is, is all consuming. And that's because there is no hope of resurrection life. There is no thought for the impact of my decisions on my neighbors. I've, I've met people even recently um, I have a little hobby farm and I, I, I sell eggs and so forth from my farm. I've had customers say, I I, I'm fine with the lockdown lasting forever. It doesn't affect me. So if you have somebody who's only thinking about themselves and they are financially well off, you know, maybe their kids are out of the house and it doesn't affect them. Who cares? Well, I could argue the same thing. I have money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a robust family life. I could just take a one or two year sabbatical. What's the point of subjecting myself to all this public scrutiny and being trashed and lied, lied about and threatened with jail time. 
Like I don't get paid more, nor do I find great joy in fighting mm-hmm. these things. I, I'm doing them because I actually do love my neighbor. Yeah. 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 I think you actually pointed out on an episode that, um, you know, that's a kind of a, an interesting argument because most of the people telling us, you know, we can and cannot do something are taking their full salaries home. You know, yes. The government, the, well, the health officials and. Yeah, especially, I mean, you probably saw when Roman Baber there spoke out, you know, one of the provincial MPPs, yeah. he, he brought some sort of a motion, I'm not sure what it's called, to, to suggest, you know, that all the decision makers, their wages should be dropped to, uh, you know, CERB level or CURB levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, no way. <laughs> so no, no, right. medical officials are getting paid overtime. There was, there's been articles about that. Yeah. Um, the people that have all the, you know, were heroes signs in their front lawn are, are getting paid. Well, they're getting overtime and in, you know, in a godless world, Christians sh- should be thankful for people that serve us in this way, but we should also remind ourselves, these are not necessarily regenerate people. Mm-hmm. And the reality is when you have, you're getting overtime in the hospital, you're getting lots of public applause, you're getting lots of media time that affects the decisions that you make. Mm-hmm. So these are just things for us to be aware of. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh-huh. Well, uh, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, okay, so we'll keep moving here. Um, I guess the, I guess we talked about this a bit with ICUs and stuff, but um, and I guess this third wave has been the most deadly, so to speak. Uh, it's been at least a lot high number of ICUs. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly if it's been, m- been more deaths in this wave, but um, that is a case that people also make that we have to really – no, 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 we need to do this third lockdown because it's the third one is the worst so far or something. What do you make of that mm-hmm. case? Yeah, so I have a good friend that's a physician and he works with COVID patients. So I, you know, I do, re- I do trust him. I rely upon him for, you know, medical input. And he said to me that the, the variants, which are kind of the talk of the town, right? The mm-hmm. variants, yeah. um, it almost sounds like aliens, right? The variants <laughs> are coming. Yeah. They, um, <laughs> many of them are more contagious, not necessarily more, uh, deadly, yeah. but let's suppose they were. Um, in our community, we just simply haven't seen that. Interestingly, Toronto has never really left the second lockdown, mm-hmm. but we had something like 40 or 42 or 44 people from the Toronto area shipped to Windsor to our hospitals, not all ICU patients. But to give you an, an illustration, the day before, Windsor, Essex, which is where I live, it's a, it's a county, Windsor's the big city, but we're about 375,000 people, I think, in Windsor, Essex. So 375,000 people live in this county. The day before we went into the third lockdown, if you jumped on our Windsor, Essex Community Health Unit website, there were five people in ICU with COVID-19 in Windsor, Essex, but they locked the whole county down. So... The, the one um, hospital, like Met Hospital, one of our big hospitals, is, from what I understand, as recently as today, the ICUs are pretty full. The other hospital, I think, has two patients and, and maybe 20 beds or something like that available. So we do have room in Windsor-Essex, but bear in mind, we have people from out of town, right, in our mm. hospital system. But to, to, to a point I made earlier... I didn't, I don't pay attention to like ICU numbers in a typical year, but I, several months ago, I jumped on my computer and I just typed in like Windsor star or, or Windsor regional hospital, something like that. Um, you know, ICUs over full. So I typed in something like that. You could do it yourself or your listeners mm-hmm. could do it. 
And I think it was 2017, it was full. 2018, it was full. So the point is, we don't talk about this on a regular basis, but ICUs are pretty much always full during seasons of the year. You know, the winter, the spring, there tends to be more viruses out there. Mm -hmm. To to punish a whole population of healthy people and lock them down and destroy their businesses and rob them of the opportunity to worship God for that reason, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm, And we've also had over a year now to build more ICUs. Which they have, to their credit. The government has done a bit of that. Not enough, but it's mm-hmm. also hard to do quickly. I guess with lots of uh, CERB money going out to other places. Yeah. Yeah. But fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. see your point. It's it's a single-payer system problem, too, because you can see in the states, like, they got their vaccine rolling quickly, but they also had, you know, double to triple the ICU capacity in states like Florida and Texas. Yeah, so mm-hmm. to, 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 relevant to our specific concern, which is the, the ministry of the gospel mm-hmm. and, the, and the, the, you know, the gathering of God's people, even if the ICUs were absolutely packed to the gills and overflowing with patients, this is when Christian, this is when churches should be the most active. Now, our elders, you know, if we were seeing casualties in our church, I can guarantee you we'd, we'd be putting our own protocols in place or whatever we, we would need to do to minimize casualties. But what we wouldn't be doing is sitting at home doing Zoom church, mm-hmm. thinking that that's somehow an alternative. We would be responsible people who would be out ministering to the sick and ministering to the lost and preaching the gospel and this kind of thing. And I mean, you can do that through electronic means, but the vast majority of Christian ministry cannot be done through electronic means. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you, you can't do congregational singing or congregational prayer without congregating yourselves. So mm-hmm. that's yeah, fair point. So if I were to flip the equation on its head and I were to say to the government, if I could prove this with data, if I were to, to say, um, you know, we, we want you to stop admitting people to your hospitals. Don't, don't let anybody else in your hospitals because I want an hour with them in the parking lot to preach the gospel to them and to convert them. Because the most significant thing for me is spiritual health. It's a buzz off. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. You, you have to balance physical health with spiritual health. But what we're being told is, no, no, spiritual health isn't important. So you, you shut your church down. And we'll, all, all we'll focus on is keeping our ICUs open. I think the ICUs should be open and well-staffed and well-funded and expanded. And I think churches should also be open to help people deal with the tragedies that they're experiencing, the emotional and spiritual needs that they're experiencing, et cetera, to provide, again, balance in all of this. Yeah. I guess you can make a comparison that if the hospitals are an essential service for the physical needs of a person, the churches are an essential service for the spiritual needs of a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is not what we've been told. Yeah. I Maybe just to touch on something before we keep going with objections. I, uh, I think you mentioned in, in one of your episodes on, on your podcast which is leadership now, by the way, people should go check it out. Um, Do you talk a little bit about the historical role of the church and and the state and how they've interacted in history and, and you know, what the, what the church has typically been doing or has done in society and how that's different than what we, we think of it, what, what we think of its role being now. And then, you know, how our minds have kind of been changed a little bit. Um, You want to just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be glad to. So this, when, when the state, if you, if you wanted to, let's say, um, you know, identify the conversion of Constantine as sort of the beginning of Western civilization, you know, people debate when the beginning of Western civilization was, but 
the the church historically, with few exceptions, has been under, has been understood in Western nations as being separate and distinct from the state in terms of its authority and its role. So the state has a job description, and the the church has a job description. You know, and if you come from a reform perspective, you'll probably be familiar with the idea of sphere sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Yep. That there's 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 a, a sphere of influence and responsibility that the state has, and there's a sphere of influence and responsibility that the church has. So, for example, the the uh, the state is responsible for public justice. They wield the sword. That's their job description in Romans thirteen. And Christian people must s- subject themselves to this, the state when the state is doing its job. They are God's deacon. They are God's ministering servant. And their job is to wield the sword, punish the evildoer, and, and reward the righteous. That's their job. But that's never been understood as the state controls the worship of the church or the responsibility of the church. The, the church has always understood itself to have Christ as its king. So... You know, we say, I'm wearing a shirt right now, you can't see it, but it says no king but Christ. And what we mean by that is we're not denying the fact that there are temporal kings, but over the church, Christ is the ultimate and final authority. Mm -hmm. So we, for example, you know, deal with issues of benevolence in the community. We proclaim the gospel. We hold the state to account for public justice. And as people who are students of God's law and God's word, you know, we we have a voice and an influence and in, in shaping, of course, as individual Christians, um, jurisprudence, law, um, court systems, this kind of thing. So Western civilization historically was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics, Judeo-Christian laws. Mm-hmm. And so in the States, it's more clear, like in documentation, the separation of church and state. Yep. That's historically not been clarified so much in law in Canada, as I understand it, but it's been understood. This is why section 176 of the criminal code forbids basically the state from stopping or hindering a clergyman in the execution of his duties. Hmm. It's the vestiges of that notion that there's a separation of church and state. So we have the, the state with its job description and the church with its job description, and they're supposed to work in partnership. But I think what we've seen, because this isn't taught, it's not taught in our churches for the most part, it's certainly not taught in high school civics. We have this notion that the, the church is just another of many organizations or institutions under the, the, the totalitarian control of the state. Mm. So then the state can say, no, you're opening or, or, or you're closing. Now you can open it. You can all have this many people. And you can have that many people. And you have to do this and do that. And if you've never studied history enough, you haven't just thought through like, oh, okay, I, I guess that's what we need to do. We just need to like obey the state, obey the state. This is a fairly modern phenomenon for, um, it, not to say that churches have not looked for direction hmm. from the state, you know, on matters of building codes or fire extinguishers or permits for parking lots or, you know, general health measures. But this is a, like a totalitarian blanket control that the state has taken over the church. Yeah. So would you? And say- so in in part, we're resisting that. Yeah. We're resisting mm-hmm. that because we see this as part of a broader fight the church needs to wage against the state. Yeah. So there's definitely two. If you look at the sphere sovereignty view, there's uh, the government sphere and the church sphere, and 
obviously COVID, it's it's right at the heart of it. And the debate is, okay, does the government have jurisdiction or not? So right. um, what we've been trying to wrestle out too and talking about this forever, it seems, is uh, does the government have the authority to shut down the church? You would say no. So then I'm just assuming that's the case, obviously, since we talked about this so much. So you would say no to that. So my, I, I guess the next extension of that question is um, the rules the government sets in place, like you just listed, for parking lot size, for fire codes, for building codes, are those uh, essentially guidelines that the churches that the church chooses to go along with, or does the government actually have jurisdiction there? What do you think of that? Yeah, so this this is something I've been thinking through. And, um, you know, when we think of, let's say, a fire code. So yeah. if you if you just look at the Ontario fire code and you look at whatever space you have in your church and you you type in, you know, if I have this many, if this this many square feet or square meters, how many people can I put, put in? Yeah. The fire code is just sort of reflecting the reality of the footprint of your building. So in our building, the fire code is always higher than what we actually know we can even fit in a room comfortably. Right. So if if we if we say, okay, the fire code is hindering our ministry, it's not really hindering our ministry at all. It's just reflecting the reality of our space limitations. But let's say our our space is too small, where we just build more space or get rid of some of our people or you know buy another facility. So we have control over how many people we can minister to. And the fire code is, is just sort of there. It's not hindering in any way, shape, or, or form our ministry. But when you have an auditorium that will seat, you know, 810 people like ours does by fire code, we only put 700 chairs in it because 800 would be very uncomfortable. But that we're told we can put 810 chairs in that building. But right now we can, we can have 10. Yep. Um, and we have all kinds of other rooms in the building, we could put, I think, something like 2,185 people or something in our building pretty comfortably. It's it's absurdity. So now it is hindering ministry. Hmm. So fire codes have never, ever hindered our ministry. Um, health unit regulations up till now have never hindered our ministry in any way, shape, or form. They hmm. reflect the limitations of the building we chose to buy and build and design. Yep. But again, Right now, I could have a stadium that seats 100,000 people, and I'm only allowed 10 people in it. Yeah. So it's, it's a massive hindrance to ministries. I, don't, I just don't see it as being apples to apples at all. Now, let's say the fire code said, oh, for churches, you, you, know, you have a room that will seat 800. We're only allowing you to seat 10 by fire code. Then I would say, yeah, we would resist that too. Right. So the line is basically the impact it has on the church's ability to do ministry and to, to share the gospel. Yeah, the impact it has and the fact that the fire code for us is in, in like literally no way, shape or form an impediment yeah. mm -hmm. to any of our ministry it's at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it's if not it, were, if it were an impediment, we would resist that too, but it's it's not an impediment to our ministry. Yeah, right. So it sounds like it's it's, it's sort of, it seems like go along because, you know, we respect the government and, you know, up until the point where it uh, impacts the ministry. You know, before that point, it's fine. But if it impacts ministry, yeah, I, would I would also say we have like uh, moral law and civil law. So we we choose to you know generally obey the speed limit. We might go a little over at times, but those speed limits are in place. You know, people deliberate. Okay, what's the shape slope of this road? What's the traffic like? Okay, we're going to put a sign out that says you can drive fifty or eighty. Yep. Um, 
God's, God's word does not give the government carte blanche authority over all of life. So in Romans 13, the, the, the job description of the government, I would argue, is limited to public justice, period. Now we live at a time when the government has taken authority over health. That, that was not the case in the New Testament. They had no authority over your health. They didn't even care about your health. They've taken authority over your health, your property rights. You know, I use the argument, they, they tell you have to put a tag in your dog. You know, municipal government put a tag in your dog. Um, so in, in our day and age, it's very different than it was in the first century. In the first century, the government had a very limited job description. Now they've, they've taken control over almost everything. And I think if, if, if I were to have any confession to make, it would be that I didn't resist more of this earlier. I just, I just didn't see it coming. This, this totalitarian control so quickly. We have Western nations. I think it might be, um, don't quote me on this. Uh, but the listeners can look it up. I think it's the Netherlands or there's a European nation that is effectively banned homeschooling. So now we have the government saying, okay, our job description is public justice. It's the education of your children. It's making sure you're healthy. It's telling you how fast you can drive on our roads and on and on and on. So Christians shouldn't have this mindset. Anytime the government puts a rule in place and we break it, oh, we're sinning. No, that shouldn't be our mindset. When we sin against the government, it's when we we um, denounce or do not subject ourselves to their role as God's deacons, God's servants in the area of public justice. Mm-hmm. It's not a sin not to put a tag in your dog or to cut a tree down they don't want you to cut down. There might be consequences to that, but it's it's not a sin because they have expanded their job description well beyond the, the boundaries of Scripture. Interesting. Yeah, that's something we got to grapple with like uh where where that boundary is i guess because i guess we've also as church taken a step a step back from the historical role of the church um i think you've said that like the church used to deal with a lot of the the benevolent work in this in the in the community right like we did a like i guess historically the church was in charge of orphanages they did a lot of like they did a lot of that work which has now been taken over by the government and and feeding the orphans widows we just we just show up at their soup kitchen and ladle soup and then say we did something good whereas the church owned the soup kitchen before um this tends to this tends to happen if you look at seminaries so we start you know bible colleges christian colleges and seminaries and then you know we grow them and we build big buildings and we get all eager to be accredited and we get accredited you know we get government approval and then things happen and we start taking government funding and then we let their credit and before long a lot of these historical christian educational institutions become godless secular Mm -hmm. marxist institutions so the university of windsor was started um, you know, out of the roots of a, a Catholic uh, seminary. McMaster was a, a Baptist seminary. You know, mm-hmm. Toronto uh, Presbyterian Anglican seminaries were, were founding institutions. You know, we have Harvard and Yale, all these yep. institutions, Oxford. The first doctorate ever issued in the world was in divinity. Yep. Medical doctors weren't called doctors, they were physicians. Yep. So, Churches started hospitals, and then you know we have a hospital here in Windsor that's that's Catholic. There's a there was a Salvation Army hospital. There was a Catholic hospital that kind of merged. So a lot of these things that people benefit from in Western cultures are brainchilds of Christians, but Christians have just sort of backed out on them and handed them off. And I'll just say this: I know it's maybe a little bit of a inflammatory comment. 
I think some churches don't see themselves as essential because they're not. Mm. They're really mm. not doing that much for people. Like if, if for, for many people, you know, if, if your church closes down, it doesn't really affect your life at all. Well, that's how I feel even as an individual sometimes, because like you said, you know, you chatted with somebody that said, well, you know, if it goes down forever, it's fine. And I mean, it, this lockdown, like it maybe hasn't like we're in the construction industry, so it hasn't affected us like as much as it affected other people. But even on the church front, like I can't honestly say that I'm out, you know, four days a week doing things that they probably historically did, like mm-hmm. like all this good work that, you know, we just count on the government to do. And so yeah. there is a little bit of that, like. Yeah. Okay. I guess I can, you know, I can put my feet up because, you know, I guess we've got to a point where we can afford just the government pays for everything and we pay our taxes and, you know, we just expect the work's being done, but you know, maybe it's time we rethink that. Yeah. I think it's true. So I mean, we should get back to some objections. So, uh, yeah, we kind of hit this honor authority one on the first point there, but if we move to, um, I guess a good witness is another point that's often brought up, you know, Churches shouldn't be out there causing trouble, creating a ruckus, and and stirring up uh, mm-hmm. dissent against the government. It's a bad witness for the church. Uh, what would you say to well, those think, people? Yeah, I think I think it's it's probably true that in all of this furor that there there have been some churches or Christians that have said or done things that probably aren't a good witness. Um, you know, t- we shouldn't just focus exclusively on tone, but you know, tone does matter. Yeah. yeah to some degree, if you guys wanted to confront me and you confronted me, you know, with a disrespectful tone, I'm less likely to receive it than if you're just more objective and cerebral about it. Mm. So there, I'm sure there's, there's situations we'll look at in hindsight and say, yeah, we, we could handle that better or that church over there or Christian could handle it better. Um, but this fundamental notion that Christian witness is somehow tied to a commensurate to public applause is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Faithful witness in scripture is tied to obedience to what God has said. So in Matthew chapter 10, for example, which talks a lot about persecution and how to respond to persecution, it says, are you going to get dragged before the courts and flogged and brother will turn on father and children against their parents, etc." And you'll be before the Gentiles, and it talks there about being a faithful witness. So this idea that, um, you know, we're we're only a faithful witness if we're sort of liked or people are, you know, applauding us, it's just just a really dangerous idea. We we have to come back to this fundamental question. And, And good people can differ on this, but this is the fundamental question. What has God commanded us to do? Not... What's Premier Ford going to think or Premier Kenny going to think or what's my neighbor going to think? We, we consider those things. Of course, we're humans and none of us want to be hated. But ultimately, if I believe before God that I need to continue engaging in public ministry with my people incarnationally, it doesn't really matter. If the whole world is against me, which they're not, but it doesn't really matter if the whole world's against me. Mm. So faithful witness is not, you know, getting the applause of the public. If anything, throughout history, we've had Christians stand for things that the world thought was ridiculous. And over time, you know, we we were a blessing to the nations and a blessing to the proverbial Gentile for taking a stand for what we believed was right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, we had a listener who wrote in that. 
and I was reading through some feedback and some questions and they said, uh, well, it says in the Bible, it says, uh, you know, the nations will hate you. And, and they thought, well, okay, this is our time for the nations to hate, hate us. But I, I mean, I don't think that's the right approach either, but I mean, obviously something that we just, you know, can't consider one side of, right. Um, yeah, I would say the, the thing there is, um, you know, we're not, it, it, it's, it's, it's nice to be liked. Okay. We, it's, it's, we all want to live quiet and peaceful lives. That's what the Bible calls us to. That's the ideal quiet and peaceful lives. I would like for this nightmare to end like right now. Okay. Like I, I, I would like to just drift into the woodwork, you know, not be on the news, mm-hmm. not be doing podcasts about this. <laughs> Sorry. I have no, <laughs> you know, I have, I have no, no interest in the drama of it. Um, but at the same time, if, uh, you know, I, I do believe in spiritual warfare and I think that a lot of people don't even know what's best for them. So, um, most people are followers. They need to be led. Most people don't think well through the issues, especially the godless and they're confused yep. and the, the narrative, the fear, the, the nonsense, the, um, myopic focus on the viral threat. It's becoming increasingly clear that people are not thinking well. So we're taking a stand. They may not like it, but I, I would like to think that the the challenges that we're experiencing right now will actually bless the people that, that hate us in the long run. Mm-hmm. Standing up for freedom for for everybody. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll just connect to that. I'd probably jump forward here a little bit, but I just wanted wanted to ask you about um, the vaccine because people are are, I guess that's another objection. Why don't we just wait for the vaccine rollout? And it seems that people are putting this on a pedestal and, and, you know, and relying on, I guess, the narrative that you mentioned, um, you know, as, as, as a kind of savior of this thing. So I was just curious, like, should, should it concern us when we hear, let's just wait for the vaccine and, and, you know, we'll get through this soon enough. Well, you know, if, if last spring, let me back up and say, um, we're probably going to be in this for another year, more or less. What makes you think that? If, uh, talking to uh, uh, medical and emergency response people in this community yep. who are on provincial panels and are discussing how long it's going to take to get people vaccinated, the second vaccine, that kind of to get through the variants and this kind of thing. Um, so we're probably going to be in this from what I've heard till roughly next spring. So if that, that's two years, and let, that, I think that kind of makes sense. Like it doesn't seem like it's going away in the next few months. So let's just assume it's going to be a two year thing. If we had said to people two years ago, okay, um, we're just going to make a quick ask of you just to flatten the curve and get through this instead of two weeks, we'd like you to sort of just put your lives on hold for two years. I can't imagine that very few people, very many people at all would have said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll wait for two years. Yeah. And two years mm-hmm. is one thirty-fifth of your entire life. And in that process, how, how, how do you possibly keep people locked up, keep people away from church, keep people away from their loved ones, shut down, you know, no, ba- no baptisms, no Christian singing publicly, how do you just how how do you keep businesses effectively closed for two years? It's just like sorry, that's impossible. Mm-hmm. You just can't do that. 
But what we've done is we've sort of, it's like, the, you know, the frog in the kettle. We've just incrementally, incrementally, don't wear a mask. Maybe you should wear a mask. You got to wear a mask. You must wear a mask. You got to wear two masks. Fortunately, that didn't seem to last very long. What's suggested becomes a rule. What's recommended quickly becomes like the, the law, it would seem. And then there's all this, you know, collateral damage. So whether or not the vaccine uh, will stop all of this stuff, the jury seems to be out on that. Um, let's let's assume by next year everyone's vaccinated and it absolutely wiped out COVID. I still don't think you can keep people locked down for two years and expect civilization not to nearly collapse. There's a few things. There's a, a friend of mine, Jonathan Wellam, he's a, kind of a financial expert down your way. He reminded us in an article he wrote for my blog that Ontario is the most indebted sub-sovereign state, meaning state under a national government, in the world. Yep. And we're just handing out money. And you guys are younger than me. You're probably more pretty close to the age of you know one of my sons. Your kids are going to be paying for this. Yep. So and we that, know it. that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. um, the vaccine is, is it's not even approved yet. It's authorized for emergency use. It's not even approved yet. We don't even know whether the vaccine is going to work the way we want. Mm, yeah. We don't know how people are going to respond to variants. Yep. And then we have a whole group of people that are conscientious objectors to vaccines. We have to honor their decisions. Yep. So mm. I, I think that putting all of our eggs literally in one basket and just thinking that the, the vaccines will solve everything is is very risky and probably a little bit narrow-minded. Again, we have to go for balance in this. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, let's let's hit a few other ones here. Um, I guess uh, one that's other is always brought up too is you can just do church online. So what's the big deal? Yeah, you, you can't. Uh, that's that's not church. So you you can communicate information online. You can. You can record music and put that out there. You can record good Christian teaching and sermons that will edify and build people up. But the Christian church is not just a sermon and listening to worship. The Christian church, by definition, is a gathering, a community. That's what the word means. And etymologically, it means called out. But um, in terms of the semantic meaning of the word, it means the gathering or community. We live our lives together. First Corinthians reminds us, you know, we, the thumb can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Like we all play a role. We're not capable of being the church by ourselves. Um, church discipline, which, which isn't just sort of like the Matthew 18 excommunication stuff, but it's the constant process of where we discipline and correct and rebuke and encourage and build each other up. That's virtually impossible to do in a digital world. Christian baptism, the proclamation of God's word. You know, in our theology, we emphasize that God manifests his presence in a special way among his gathered people. Um, all the majority of the one another's of scripture, the sacraments, on and on and on and on and on. The holy kiss, you know, signs of physical affection, mourning with those who mourn, grieving with those who grieve. Weddings, Christian weddings, mm -hmm. Christian funerals. Like almost everything we do pastorally requires some measure of physical presence. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing that deeply concerns me 
is I, I, I was thinking about this this afternoon. I wonder, so pastors that have basically taught their people, we don't have to meet, you know, like that's not what Hebrews 10, 25 means. We don't have to meet. It's not, a, not necessary. What, what is their rationale going to be to regather their people, you know, if, and when the virus is finally over and gone with, you know, g- yeah. gone, what, what's mm-hmm. your rationale going to be? Now you you almost got to like, um, keep people online. I know of a church in Kitchener that talked about that, maybe just staying online. Um, or I don't know, apologize or, or, or just kind of have, have a church experience. that's not really all that important. So fundamentally the church is a family, right? It's a gathering of people. So if I was, if I was told, Aaron, you got to stay away from your wife for a year. Say what? Well, you might catch something from her. Fine. I'll catch something from her. Cause mm-hmm. I can't have a marriage physically absent from my wife. Yep. Mm-hmm. Same with my kids, my relationships. So it's, this is like what I'm saying. It's very earthy. It's a very earthy theology. We are incarnational beings. We are flesh and blood. And mm-hmm. there is, maybe we haven't developed this theology well. And sometimes it's difficult to even put into words because it's very relational. Yep. But when yep. God's people gather as God's, family as the body of Christ in your soul and spirit and mind, you know, something is taking place. that's different than, you know, you sit in front of your laptop on Sunday morning, watching a sermon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And we're even disappointed. You can't be here with us. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we're having a conversation, but there, there is, um, there's something about, and I don't want to just kind of get all like, um, uh, subjective about it because I think there's a theological basis to this, but, mm. but when you're around people, it's different than, you know, when you spend time with people, there's something like wearisome yeah. about even this kind of communication, yeah. but there's something mm. refreshing and invigorating about in-person fellowship. Yeah, yeah, it's really true. Yeah. But even you touched on something I, I heard, I don't know if it was one of our listeners who mentioned it or just, you know, we talk about this all, every day, all day, but um, someone mentioned to me that it, they feel like it's almost a a sin that most of most of us or you know a lot of us feel like what you said like it's impossible to have a, a relationship you know with your kids or you know with your wife apart from seeing them and so a lot of people like continue to get together with their families like it's it's very hard especially you know families that are struggling and you know your needs inside your own family and so i think we do a good job of ministering to our own families and so a lot of people are still getting together, but then they don't get together on Sunday with, with this, you know, yeah. the body of, of Christ. And yeah, I'm just, when you were talking, I just feel, feel that now I'm like, you know what, that's a, it's a difficulty. Well, you're not helping had, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. I, I actually personally know of people that have publicly spoken out against our position of, of meeting contrary to the, you know, the, the rules mm-hmm. who themselves have had people over to their houses, contrary to the rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even so the almost, government officials, it's, don't, so. like, it's like, well, yeah. I mean, we had all the, all the last year, it seemed like every week there was some official being busted, right. <laughs> yeah. Trip to the cottage, trip to the Caribbean, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pro lockdown pastors are doing that. Um, pro lockdown citizens and Christians are doing that. And it's, it's almost like they, I think it, it says uh, it says something to me about their view of the church. Yeah, family is extremely important. Church isn't; it's not really even essential for them. Yeah, 
Yeah. I don't know what other conclusion yeah. you could draw. Well, I guess unless you say, well, you can you can do the family thing under the radar, but you know, it's it's a different thing to witness publicly together. But I mean, yeah, I don't want to make that argument. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So another, I like, think there's two two more to really hit on. Um, one of them is uh, the church is not being specifically targeted by the government's efforts. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, blanket approach. I mean, as of right now, everything's locked down apart from, you know, some of the big box stores and maybe the LCBO and weed stores, but on, on whole, it's, uh, it's, it's a lockdown across the board. So the church is not being specifically targeted. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I think there's, there's a couple comments I'll make. The one would be it, it, that kind of discounts spiritual warfare. Um, you know, if I was the devil, I'd want the churches to be closed. Mm. I couldn't care as much about whether the gym is open or not yeah. or the capacity limits at Walmart. I mean, what, what difference does that make in the grand spiritual picture of things, but for the church to be closed, even by well-meaning people. So I, for example, happen to believe that most of the people making these decisions are well-meaning. I think they're naive and ignorant. <laughs> and I think that they also are, you know, concerned about their salaries. There's like an element of sin. But I would never accuse the premier, the chief medical officer of, you know, wringing their hands in some back room thinking, oh, this is our opportunity to take down the Christian church. I don't, I don't think that. Yeah. If, if, if we were to discover that was happening, I'd be shocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think that they're, they're, they're ignorant and they're naive. And they're also stepping outside of their job description and they're being used by the devil. But all of that aside... When people say the church isn't being targeted, it's actually a moot point. Why? Because the church, unlike businesses, unlike individual citizens, is separate from the state. People say, oh, you're asking for special treatment. Yeah, I am. Of course I'm asking for special treatment because the church is distinct from the state. Mm -hmm. We have a different role of responsibility. And when the state closes churches and treats them okay not only are we being treated like businesses but we're being treated as non-essential businesses so there's a double insult there mm-hmm. it's transgressing its sphere of authority yeah. um mm-hmm. so whether whether we're being persecuted or not I, I wouldn't be prepared to say that we're being persecuted deliberately by the government yeah I would be prepared to say we're being persecuted by the devil who's using well-meaning government agents to do that. Mm-hmm. But even if we weren't, the state is still transgressing its sphere of authority. Yep. And what, just this, this kind of sidebar on that, but if you look at the, the color-coded plans for the province of Ontario, or we both reside, and you look at the church capacity limits, even uh, if we get to green, which, you know, let's hope and pray we do, green still limits the church at 30%. So there really doesn't seem to be any sort of plan from the government side of view, point mm-hmm. of view rather, to uh, to let the churches get back to full capacity. Mm-hmm. So like that that is another point. I'm not saying it's a specific persecution, but it doesn't seem like the government yeah. has a plan to let the church get back to normal. No, the other thing would be that for whatever reason, the the state has been much more draconian with its response to. Um, churches that have not complied than businesses. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple restaurants out here in the County where I live and they've decided we're opening, we're defining the rules. Yep. The bylaw officers show up, here's your $800 ticket. They show up at our church 
Here's a court summons with up, with up to a hundred thousand dollar fine in a year in jail for you, Reverend Rock. Yep. So it, it's, it seems like very disproportionate. We've also observed, and this isn't the state as in the officials, um, you know, the, 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 the officials responsibility, but oh my word, the media coverage we get is just vicious and vile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when when someone opens a restaurant contrary to the rules, you'll get people on there close them down, close them down. You know this person needs to be closed down. You'll, you will get that, yep. but you don't get people dumping you know five pounds of nails in their parking lot like they did to us. You don't get people like just ragging on us. And and we we have um, we've had people in our church who've been called. Oh, is it you know or contacted by media? Is it true that you're associated with this church and someone in your family's contracted COVID? Do you do that with Lowe's or Home Depot? No. So the, no. they they they're looking because when when this if you if you go on like let's say the Windsor Stars Facebook page and you look at all these different articles they're posting almost every hour, you know, you'll get whatever, 10, five, six comments, 20, 30 likes. You post something about Harvest Bible Church. You're going to get hundreds of comments and hundreds of likes or dislikes. I mean, it's like media heaven. Yeah. You wonder people why they love to go after the church. So there's a spiritual element to this. And there's people in our culture that just hate the church and are just lo- looking for opportunities to attack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the media, yeah, it's a whole other kettle of fish for sure. And that's, uh, it's definitely an aspect of spiritual warfare there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to talk? About yeah. I want to, I want to ask you about, so just moving forward, like, you know, say we get through this thing, um, like, you know, we're coming through this. How important is it to stay unified as a church? Because, you know, like you expressed too, there's there's a lot of different opinions in the church and some people lean this way and some people lean that way. You know, some people wear a mask until, you know, they, they're taken away and, and some people, you know, won't wear a mask if you've tried to force them. But, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of division over these over these things and and bringing us back to, you know, one church at the end of this is going to be, you know, a challenge to say the least. Yeah. How do you balance basically church unity with the um, need to act on your principles to open the church again, mm-hmm. if you believe that to be the case? So are you talking about like the broader church or just my own local church? Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe speak to your local church, but then also like, again, like our audience is, is the reform churches. And for the most part, um, I mean, there's a fair amount of churches doing parking lot services and that kind of thing. But for the most part, I have not heard of any churches like full out. No, like, no, completely really. disobeying. Yeah. But if some churches, I'm sure many folks feel like that and many folks feel opposite to that as well. So sure. the the challenge for many of the, the ministers in our federation and the councils especially is how to mm-hmm. how to balance um, the need to reopen, which everyone recognizes this situation is not ideal and many folks feel like it should get back to reopening very quickly. So you hold out the idea of, okay, maybe back the, you know, the government will give us back our freedom and then we can reopen the church and hopefully things get back to normal. And we don't have to cause this massive division by making a decision like right now. Um, yeah. Versus just making that decision and, and risking that division in the church. How did, how did you weigh that out in your circumstance? And then do you have recommendations yeah. for, for other churches? Is it different? So church first to church? of all, yeah, first of all, the, the sad news is, even though I don't like to say this, I, I guess it's like in war, you're going to take casualties. You're, you're not going to enter the battlefield and not take casualties. Yeah. Um, so because this is such a hot button issue, and I think has such significant theological and cultural import, 
as a pastor, you just have to like suck it up and say, I, I, I will never be able to, to avoid division unless. So if I take a pro lockdown stance, I'm going to divide my people. If I take a pro, um, you know, opening stance or anything in between, you're going to have division. Inevitably, you're going to have division. So yeah. the way we've dealt with it in our church is primarily through teaching. So just a lot of teaching, a lot of comments, a lot of blogging, a lot of podcasts, a lot of one-on-one conversations. So now we're at a point in the, in our church where there's a very high level of unity. Yep. Now, fortunately, from the beginning, we have uh, 13 elders in our church. Um, fortunately, from the beginning, we've had unity right across the board with our with our elders. Um, so that's been a blessing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but I think part of that came out of like strong teaching and conversations and camaraderie, which you always have to be working on, even in the best of times as a, as a pastor. Um, some people at the beginning did leave our church. They just left. They're like, we don't agree with this. We're leaving. And then others have come from other churches or from the community because of our stance. And we've had opportunities to minister to restaurant owners and other insurance agents that don't know Christ. <clears throat> because of our stance and appreciate what we're doing. Um, but I have lost friends. I've lost friends from other churches. Um, you know, many of the guys that I probably would have considered myself most theologically aligned with do not hold my views. And I've broadened my network and met people in a lot of different federations and associations. It's just inevitable. I, I see this as a, a critical watershed issue for our generation that we have to take a stand on and that will cause divide. It, some people might get offended by this. It, it will separate wheat from chaff, for example. It will, it will clarify, um, you know, who really is willing to pay the full price. So if a pastor says, look, I've studied the issues. I, I just, I honestly do not think that we should be opening our church before God it objectively speaking, doesn't matter what the government says, we should not be opening our church. Fine. I respect a guy like that, yep. but I'm finding most guys aren't, aren't there. They're like, I want to open my church, but I, I can't do it because I don't want to be fine. What kind of leadership is that? Yep. Um, that's just, that's not an acceptable reason to say, well, I think we should open our church, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be fine. Like Aaron was down there in Windsor. That's, that's not a convictional approach. That's a convenient approach. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and that decision will af- affect the willingness of your people to follow you. If they find that you're making a decision based on finances and convenience rather than on conviction. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think there is going to be division. It's necessary and inevitable. I happen to think this is also tied into all the cultural wars that we're fighting. So we have bill C six, bill C seven, you know, bill C 10, which I hope is dead, but you know, the, the censorship bill, yeah. Uh, the LGBTQ stuff, the globalism, you know, the, the move towards universal income on and on and on all the stuff that Trudeau behind the scenes is pushing for as the premiers do the dirty work. Yeah. If the church can't stand for this, I don't really know how they're going to be able to stand for these other things. Mm-hmm. So there is going to be division. I just don't see a way around that. But if my advice to like a pastor trying to really keep his church together is 
I guess I kind of bring it back to the central issue of who's the king of the church. You just need to answer that. Who, who ultimately calls the shots for what you do as a church? And if you say Christ and Christ alone, then you have your answer. You need to act accordingly. Yep. If you have more of a syncretistic approach or a hybrid approach of somehow the church and the state makes this decision together, then that's not going to work because the state is just telling you what to do. So mm-hmm. your choice is either, either obey Christ or you just obey whatever the state says. Yep. Um, I don't know of any pastors that like what's going on. So you're they're in my view, they're just they're they're either obeying Christ or the church. Now, let me just maybe soften my comments with this. Um, you know, pastors are always trying to bring their people along too. They don't necessarily want to scatter their flocks. Mm-hmm. So if you know, the first lockdown, you complied. The second lockdown, you went on Zoom. The third lockdown, you're now in the parking lot. You know, the fourth lockdown, you're just going to resist and enter the building. Fine, I get it. People are, they're, they're progressing. They're trying to move their people along. And, you know, we've kind of done that too. Um, but if you're just, every time you're just locking the doors, fourth lockdown, fifth lockdown, however many of these there's going to be, I I can't imagine there's not at least going to be four or five. Um, Contrary to your own conscience, well, you're going to have to give an an account for that. Yeah, Mm. yeah. I don't, I don't envy those in in position of leadership right now. It's it's certainly a trying time. You know, we talked about praying for our leader. Pray for your pastors too. Like, Mm. it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah, and. People have different capacities, different ways of thinking. They have different dynamics with their boards. I know of guys that are, you know, it's their first church. They've been in ministry for a year. They don't have a great deal of authority. But, you know, maybe they're using Twitter. They're speaking out on Twitter or Facebook or they're doing some writing. Like just sitting there and saying nothing is not leadership. Do Mm -hmm. something like try to do something to advance the agenda. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely not, it doesn't seem to be by your comments, at least it's not a binary choice between stay closed and stay open. It, would you, would you agree that there's some acceptable middle ground positions as you bring your people along, so to speak? Yeah. So just, you know, we use the talk, we use the term about open and close. Really that's kind of irrelevant. It's, it's about whether we're able to fully engage in incarnational ministry or not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you, when you're locked out of your building, um, I just don't think the solution is zoom. You know, go underground, Yep. Uh, find alternative locations, meet in the park, meet in the parking lot or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, there's I'm not I'm not going to like, you know, judge people that are doing now what you know we were doing in December or whatever it might be. But I, I, I have a really hard time, I guess, with folks that. They don't agree with what's going on, but they're not leading their church through it because they're concerned about losing a few people or that they, you know, they don't have the session on site or they don't have um, money to pay a fine or, or something like that. That's just not good leadership. And your people, I think your people are going to resent you for that long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if we get into a situation where we're, you know, we're doing more than just COVID over our lifetime. Like this is, I guess our, you know, you touched on a little bit, like we're setting a precedent one way or the other. I mean, maybe not necessarily in our minds, but definitely in the government's minds and how uh, willing we are to, to cooperate with their, um, their agenda or their, you know, rules or whatever. We've already, we've already had one medical officer come out and use the word permanent, permanent. Permanent. 
permanent. Oh, permanent. Yeah, he's he's considering that lockdowns might need to be permanent. Oh, wow. That these restrictions might need to be permanent on congregate settings. Thinking, okay, so do you do you rebel the fifteenth lockdown, the one hundredth lockdown? Like, at what point yeah. mm. do you say enough's enough? In my view, we're actually past the the, the date. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In my view, we need to assert the absolute supremacy of Christ over His church now, if not five yes, months ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because this is just going to. This is. This is. I, I don't see this is going to get. This is. This is necessarily going to get better in terms of precedent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Now, now seems to be the time for, for leadership and, and, and communication. If your church needs to be brought along and just for the time for pastors and for councils to be putting out, you know, different messages and, and just saying, look, here's where we're at. Here's the thought process all along and, and kind of start to take back some of that authority that has been ceded to the government. Because mm-hmm. if, this, if this could, would be over, this would be over if a great number of churches had said enough's enough. Right. Mm-hmm. And then elders councils would have said, okay, for our circumstances in our region, you know, we love our people. We're going to put our own restrictions mm-hmm. right. or whatever exactly. in place. Yeah. You know, yeah. because if an area has no COVID, why should they be locked down? If an area is, you know, half your church is dropping dead. Well, then maybe you want to run 10 services or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, this, this blanket uh, offering of total, total and supreme authority to, the premier I, I is, is wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, so we, tr- we tried to do our best to present devil's advocate throughout this, but <laughs> as people can obviously tell, we're certainly sympathetic okay. to your position. You're bad, bad little devils. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a compliment. Yeah. No, I don't know if I want to be a good devil. So, but yeah, uh, no, it's, it, it is something that we got to struggle through. Like I just see like, as we, as we try to, decide when you know like you said like we don't really know when we're going to take a stand necessarily and that's and that's kind of what our federation's been been struggling with like i think we i think it, it's growing just like just like it is in the world like our neighbors feel it too and and we talk like i talked to all my neighbors and and i don't think any of them are are even abiding by the guidelines anymore everyone's having people over and you know the odd time you see someone wearing a mask but that's about it and I think that, you know, we're, we're, we're pushing to a point where we're waiting till the public, you know, is okay with us going back. But, you know, we also want to show some leadership and, and, and to struggle through all these issues is like, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a challenge. So, I mean, well, we, 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 to protocol, I'll just make one more comment about protocols. Mm-hmm. I really think that should be a matter of personal conscience. Yep. So if a Christian pastor says to his congregants in order to participate in Christian worship, you must wear a mask. That's an extra biblical requirement for Christian worship. Right. Or I hate to say it, but I just have this sneaky feeling that vaccinations might be mandated eventually to participate in congregate settings, which would include the church. There's, there's been some talk about that. And generally what I've observed is someone mentions it and then almost little you know, lets it kind of float around out there. And then someone else mentions it. And all of a sudden before long, it's like, yeah, let's do this. So that's been, the, that's, that's how the mask thing's gone. That's mm-hmm. how the, um, you know, the, the churches have largely been handled and, uh, you know, physical distancing protocols and all that kind of thing. But masks being the main one, we all remember when masks were not recommended yeah. just a year and a bit ago, please don't wear masks. And now it's like you're, you know, you're treated worse, uh, 
you know, if you don't wear a mask and if you're a serial killer or something, and yeah. I know that's overspeak, but you kind of get my point. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so yeah. when they're saying, ah, you know, you're probably not gonna be able to go into the States without a vaccine passport or certificate or whatever. Well, connect the dots. What happens if they say you cannot go to church without a vaccine? Well, several people in our church have already been vaccinated, but several others don't want to be vaccinated. They either don't feel comfortable with an experimental vaccine that hasn't been approved by the FDA, yep. or maybe they're conscientious objectors to vaccines, period, or they just don't like, they've done their research, they don't like the RNA vaccine. So I'm not going to say to those people, you can't come to church. That's an extra biblical requirement. Yep. But I think many churches, if, if it gets to that, if my prediction's right, will enforce that because they've enforced masks and they've enforced physical distancing and they've enforced other things. Yep. We've said to our people, look, um, you need to familiarize yourself with the health protocols and then act on your conscience. And we're going to respect a diversity of opinion on that. Yep. Mm. Oh, we've had the but same thing. What, yeah. what we would highly advise, like, please, please don't come to church if you're sick. I mean, come on, we're not like looking to get people sick. We don't deny that there's a virus. Mm -hmm. You sometimes have to remind people that, look, don't come to church if you're sick. What are you doing? Um, you know, fortunately, we haven't had outbreaks and whatnot, but it could happen if people acted foolishly. Yep. So just, these are the kind of things we need to think about. If you're not standing for these principles now, what's going to happen when it gets worse? Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you have any yeah. last things you want to? Well, I mean, I got a hundred things, so, yeah, but we can sure. do this all night. Uh, yeah. Just like, just struggling with the unity thing. Cause like if people, if people, you know, so want, yeah, even with the vaccine, if someone wants the vaccine, someone doesn't want to come to church unless everyone's vaccinated. I mean, I, it comes to a point where it's you struggle to believe, you know, you have to either believe or not believe what the government's telling you or the health officials are telling you about the the effectiveness of everything. But well, it would it would seem that way. But I think to simplify the issue, people need to understand you cannot place extra biblical expectations on people to participate in Christian worship. Mm. If you're a Christian, you know, bought by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ you qualify to be a part of the church, a participant in the life of the church and to participate fully as a member of the body of Christ mm -hmm. to say to another believer, you know, you need to be vaccinated to worship with me is unbiblical. Yeah. We and, actually need that. We need those people, <laughs> you know, they're part of the body. They're not just, you know, uh, you know, maybe possibly could become part of the body. Like and the thing of it is, is if a person was vaccinated and they believed in the efficacy of the vaccine, why would they care if someone else wasn't vaccinated? You know, yeah. um, it was to Dr. Fauci a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, you know, there's a lot of question marks about this. So I have a physician buddy. He had both vaccines, uh, a fresh, you know, negative test, rapid test in his hands, less than a half an hour old. And they still put him in quarantine. And he's a physician. Both back. So it's like, okay, this guy's like the premier candidate. Yeah. A physician works with COVID patients, vaccine one, vaccine two, negative rapid test, goes over to the States, comes back, you're in quarantine for two weeks. So it does kind of raise suspicions and it certainly doesn't help with you know the vaccine rollout. So I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not eager to get the vaccine. I would much prefer uh, you know, if the vaccine was approved 
by mm-hmm. the FDA. I mean, if it's if it's so great, approve it. Yeah, yeah well, they know, actually, so I, yeah, they like recalled the one, didn't they? AstraZeneca. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's been some challenges. So, and again, I haven't followed those details, but I I did take some time to look up on the FDA website. The word authorized is not the same as the word approved. Yeah, both starts with an A, but they're different words. So make sure you do your homework and don't be, I'm very opposed to forced anything, forced vaccinations. No, I'm opposed to that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, most people, uh, it's, it is strange and unprecedented that people who have had COVID and therefore presumably have the antibodies are also being asked to be vaccinated. That's weird. Mm. You know, generally you get vaccinated to prevent it, yeah. not to, um, not after you've already had it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of oddball things going on. I don't think people yeah. are thinking clearly. I would not, I just don't think it's wise for us to assume that the vaccines are going to fix all this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. All right. Well, we're running pretty, pretty tight up to the hour and a half mark here. So maybe yeah. I guess just to end it off, uh, you want to just say a last couple of words. If, if you had to make the case for people who are struggling with the issue, what's the best case you can make for reopening your church and getting back to, uh, you know, I, I would just say, I was thinking about this a week ago. My my biggest discouragement right now is that there are so few willing to actually speak publicly against this, these lockdowns. But there are so many more than willing on the sidelines to cheer on those that are. Yeah. And it's very hard when you're out on the battlefield swinging your sword against this gigantic enemy. And you're looking around, and you're seeing all these people cheer you on but very few that will step onto the battlefield. And what I would, you know, plead with other churches to do is, you know, at some point a guy like me is going to run out of gas and I'm not going to be out there swinging my, my sword in the battlefield. anyway. I'm going to be just curled up in a fetal position or something, (laughs) um, you know, discouraged or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So now is the time, even if it's not, you know, fully opening your church and, you know, charging the building, speak out like actually take a bold stance by the way petitions are essentially useless they're not reading them protests are okay but like educate and speak out and you know rally the troops and um you know get in contact with your local officials and say enough's enough this has to end like be bold about it Mm -hmm. um if more people would step onto the battlefield this would be over i can tell you multiple stories of unbelievers in business who have are looking to the church for uh, to, to take a stand for them. Yep. Yep. Like way back in the vestiges of their memory of human history, they have this notion. I think churches are, our church is supposed to speak out against unrighteousness. Our church is supposed to be places of refuge. So this is a great opportunity for us to minister to lost people too. Yep. And to, 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 you know, bring them into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we just need to all get on the battlefield, do our part. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're inspiring me. <laughs> yeah. That's good stuff. So, that's good. Much appreciated. Thanks for coming on, even though you're probably so sick of uh, being that public figure, but we really appreciate it. Uh, well, well, thanks for what you guys are doing. These, you know, these, we need people uh, like these podcasts so. do make a difference. Yeah. 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 Hopefully we're, people listen and we're open. Yeah. So, and yeah, and we invite our listeners to, you know, if you agree or disagree on obviously on this issue, please send us your feedback. Let us know what you thought of, of what we thought and what pastor rock had to say. And yeah, that's uh, I guess we'll kind of leave it there folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming on pastor rock and keeping having, keep having real conversations and real talk. We'll catch you next time.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. You can send us your feedback by emailing us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. You can find us on social media by looking for the handle Reformed Real Talk. You can find us online by going to realtalkpodcast.ca. We look forward to your feedback as that's what helps us grow and improve as podcasters. Real Talk is produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, Tyler Vanderwood, and Tim Van Wodenberg. The theme music was created by Calvin Hutton. The table and cabinet behind me were made by Ethan Vanderwood of Eureka Woods. And finally, this sign in the studio was made by Zebra Signs. That's it for now, folks. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.